Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Kayla Posadas, and our reading this morning is going to be from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Buenos días a todos. Mi nombre es Kayla. Nuestra lectura de esta mañana va a ser de Juan, capítulo 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started off with the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. El primer día de la semana, muy de mañana, cuando todavía estaba oscuro, María Magdalena fue al sepulcro y vio que habían quitado la piedra que cubría la entrada. Así que fue corriendo a ver a Simón Pedro y al otro discípulo, a quien Jesús amaba, y les dijo, Se han llevado el sepulcro al Señor, y no sabemos dónde lo han puesto. Pedro y el otro discípulo se dirigieron entonces al sepulcro. Ambos fueron corriendo, pero el otro discípulo corría más a prisa que Pedro. Llegó primero al sepulcro. Inclinándose, se asomó y vio ahí las vendas, pero no entró. Tras él, llegó Simón Pedro y entró en el sepulcro. Vio ahí las vendas y el sudario que había cubrido la cabeza de Jesús, aunque el sudario no estaba con las vendas, sino enrollado en un lugar aparte. En ese momento entró también el otro discípulo, el que había llegado primero al sepulcro, y vio y creó. Hasta entonces no habían entendido la escritura, que dice que Jesús tiene que resucitar. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are the richest and most advanced society ever. It's just hands down, we're the richest, most advanced society ever. And yet, we're the most divided and anxious and hopeless. Over the past few years, we have dealt with a lot of things in our country. Uh, just a couple of years ago, and even to this day, we're dealing with a racial, a, a racial reckoning and, and some of our history that has never been fully resolved. There's a drive within our country, a grassroots effort, especially driven by the younger generations, for justice. And this is a good thing. But we're also the most politically divided, hostile to one another, ready to battle one another over wearing a mask or not. We are incredibly wealthy. We've seen advances in technology that are absolutely amazing. And the, the, the idea that the iPhone is just 15 years old is, is mind-blowing. That's 18 years ago, at best you had a Blackberry and you probably had a flip phone. But with all of our technology, all of our wealth, we could not control a global pandemic. And we are filled with anxiety and depression and hopelessness, even in spite of all of our wealth and technology. Jonathan Haidt, a uh, social psychology professor, 
wrote about what's been going on in America the past 10 years in a recent Atlantic Monthly article when he wrote this, in America, in the 2010s, something went terribly wrong. And something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. It's quite clear that red and blue America are becoming like two countries claiming the same territory. And commenting on our level of depression, especially amongst the younger generations, Derek Thompson, a columnist for the, Amer for the Atlantic, wrote this, the U.S. is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistently sad or hopeless rose from 26% to 44%. A survey from just the first six months of 2021, a year ago, found this. More than one in four teenage girls had seriously contemplated attempting suicide during the pandemic. We are not doing well. Happy Easter! <laughs> you know, if we're going to have hope in the midst of this breakdown, in the midst of things that we see and experience ourselves. We need more than Easter to be about Easter bunnies and lilies, as wonderful as they can be. And the truth of Christianity is that it's not. It's not about those things. It is about an empty tomb. Now, if you kind of just think about the way our culture now views Easter, and many religious people view Easter, it's an inspiring tale. It's an inspiring tale about how Jesus was confronted by evil and died and then rose again, kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And we put it in the same category as spring, because there's winter and there's death everywhere, but then the flowers bloom, and good things will happen in the end. And so it's this inspiring reminder that good things can happen. Scholars will tell you that Easter was just a myth, a fable made up hundreds of years later by the church who had won the battle of power and they used it to kind of confirm their narrative. But Christianity from the very first days held that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul, writing 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, said, if Jesus was not raised bodily from the dead, our faith is futile. And there is no such thing as life after death. This morning, we're going to spend the next 20, 40, 80 minutes talking about the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that it is first plausible, reasonable, something you can believe in. It is second powerful. And thirdly, it's meant to be personal. So the first thing is this, the, the resurrection of Jesus is plausible, even though we kind of think like, ah, oh, people don't rise from the dead, so did he actually rise from the dead? But look at the evidence, and look at the evidence as a good historian. Be a scientist, a detective yourself. In the very first couple of verses, we get the first evidence that this actually happened. In verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 20 that Kayla just read, we, we read, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So we have descriptions here that are like a first-person account of the, this, this woman who's going to the tomb early in the morning, and, and the tomb's empty and the body's not there, and she doesn't know why. 
But the greatest evidence, and this has been heard from many of you, is that it actually describes the first eyewitness of the empty tomb and of Jesus' resurrection is Mary Magdalene, a woman. In fact, all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection testify to the very first eyewitnesses being women, Mary Magdalene being the chief among them. In the first century, a woman was considered less than fully human. She did not have status in the community. A woman could not testify in a Jewish court, nor in a Roman court. They had no grounds or authority for doing so. In other words, you would not include women if you were trying to tell a narrative that was going to convince other people. This was confirmed a hundred years later when a guy who was writing against Christianity wrote amongst many things why you shouldn't believe in Christianity, why it was false, is because the first account was written by, or the first witness was a woman, and he writes it this way in a way that's not very politically correct now. The chief witness of the resurrection is a hysterical female, half crazy from fear and grief. Celsus, the philosopher, is telling the pagans, don't believe in Christianity. The very first witness was a hysterical female, and we know you can't trust a woman in, in a court of law. They, who, you know, like, what are they thinking? They, they don't have authority or status. These Christians are building their entire belief system on the testimony of a woman, Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute and demon-possessed. Nowadays, of course, we say, no, this is actually one of the greatest evidences that it was not made up. Because if you were going to make up a story and you wanted it to be plausible for a Jewish, Greek, or Roman audience in the first century, you would have cut out the women and just said, Peter and John saw. The only reason to include them was that they were actually there. Unless, of course, we go on to the idea that they were kind of putting in these, these points of of description to make it sound realistic, right? And you get a lot of them. In verses 3 through 7, we get a description of Peter and the other disciple. That The other disciple is John, the gospel writer. He doesn't name himself. So Peter and John, they go running to the tomb. And John's really great about this. He says, Peter goes running to the tomb, and the other disciple outran him to the tomb. <laughs> He's like, Peter, for some reason, was like running in molasses. It's like, it's like he was dragging a trailer, but the other disciple, I don't know, he's just fleet of foot, got there first. Sort of a, a bragging here. And then they describe the linens. And the way that it's described is actually very explicit about the linens that Jesus' body would have been wrapped in, like a mummy, being folded and laying neatly. And they even describe in nearly every one of the gospel accounts doubts, uncertainty, is he just stolen? What's happened? They, they weren't putting it together right away. Now, nowadays we would say, well, they added those in to make it sound realistic, right? You add in details. But in the first century, that was not a thing that people did. If you were going to write a novel nowadays, you would write a novel so that you would include details to make it sound as if it was actually happening. But again, that did not exist in the first century. C.S. Lewis, an Oxford professor who studied ancient myths, wrote this about the Gospels. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Either this is reportage, what actually happened, or else some unknown writer without predecessors or successors 
suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic literature. The novel, the modern novel, the modern fiction with its explicit details that are made up, didn't begin until the 1600s. This is eyewitness account. And it's not just the text themselves, it's what happens in the decades and centuries afterwards. It is the spread of Christianity that is, um, it's almost impossible to understand why it did what it did in the Roman world without the belief that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Do you know that there were other people who claimed to be messiahs in the hundred years before and after Jesus? Jewish people who would come and gather a band of people, begin pre preaching about cleansing Israel of all the evil religious people and casting out the Romans. They would usually gather their band, go to Jerusalem, and be squashed, executed, and within a few weeks or years, the whole group was disbanded and done with. Judas the Galilean, Bar Kokhba, do you know many followers of them today? In fact, those of you who are under 30 years old, how, do you, how many of you guys know about um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? A similar person who claimed to be a Messiah-like figure gathered people around him, but when he was killed, his movement stopped. If Jesus had simply been killed, why did his movement not only keep going, but it spread and it spread amongst Jewish people, his disciples, his first disciples were Jewish people. And Jewish people were monotheists. They believed in one God. And he was such a holy other creator God, they called him Yahweh, and they couldn't even pronounce that name. They did not believe in pagan idolatry or the Roman deities. And yet within the first couple of weeks and in the first couple of years, they believed that this Jesus was God. This was completely counter to everything that they had ever believed or seen or been brought up in. Their entire worldview was built around one God, a monotheistic God that you could not see, and all of a sudden they're claiming this Jesus is God because he rose from the dead. And pretty much every one of them died horrific deaths at the hands of the authorities claiming Jesus was risen bodily from the dead. Christianity in those first three centuries defied category, class, people of poor and high class gathered together, and culture. It transcended language and culture. It wasn't just you had to be Jewish or you had to be Roman. You could be Asian, Latino, black, white. It didn't matter. It transcended culture. Something was going on here that changed the entire face of the world. British theologian and scholar N.T. Wright summed it up this way. The ruling hypothesis in much New Testament study that the resurrection narratives were written as allegories, not literal events, fails at the levels of literature, history, and theology. The gospel writer believes these things happened. The empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus are as well established as any ancient historical data could be. And they are the only possible explanation for the stories and beliefs that grew up so quickly among Jesus' followers. In other words, the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus is plausible, reasonable, unless you begin with an unprovable assumption that it could not have happened, which takes faith itself. Jesus' physical resurrection is reasonable, and it makes the most sense of the evidence and the impact that it had on the rest of the world. 
As Japanese author Shosuko Endo wrote, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. So first, let me just say, examine it for yourself if you're not sure what you believe. Examine it for yourself and, and know this, faith, faith is not purely intellect and reason, but it's never less than that. It always includes intellect and reason as well. So the first thing is this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ says is plausible. The second is it is incredibly powerful. It is transformative, and it confronts us and the world with a power that provides a hope that we cannot find on our own. The resurrection declares that there is eternal life, life after however many years we have on this earth, and that is powerful hope for our future. You know, every one of us is aware inside of us that we are made for more, more than however many years we have on this life. When a loved one dies, when a, a daughter dies, or a best friend dies, or a spouse dies, when your parent dies, we grieve. We grieve their loss because something in us is not okay with 30 or 50 or 80 years. It's just not long enough for those that we love the most. And we know that because we even see it in, in little things in life that we want to last longer. A good novel, you, you're sad when it's over. A day, a wonderful day like of sledding in the snow, you just want it to keep going on forever. A great meal, you want it to keep going. We long for the good things in life to keep going, and we long for our loved ones to live forever, and that's because we are made to last forever. But we live in a world, according to Christianity, that is broken and fallen and infused with death. And we see this in our own lives. We live with constant guilt, shame, fear. We're always trying to cover ourselves, trying to deal with it, trying to diffuse how people view us. That brokenness inside of us eats us up. And then there's death that we keep trying to pretend like doesn't exist. The final evil and brokenness. But the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ declare that Jesus conquered sin and evil and death. And he opens the door to life life divine and life eternal. The Christian hope, the hope of the resurrection, is that this life is not all that there is. And there, that is a powerful and transformative hope, regardless of what we think our future holds. But it's not just hope for the future. It is a hope for the present, for suffering, for facing suffering in our own lives. You know, Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, right? That's the claim of Christianity. He was given a new creation body, and this says something to us. It says that we're not just bouncing around as angels on some clouds as souls. It says that God wants to do something in this earth, and it involves a recreation of this creation and the renewal of our bodies as they are meant to be. And that is a powerful testimony in the face of suffering for people who wish they were not in the bodies that they are in. Two years ago, we watched on screen as Ahmaud Arbery was being chased down and hunted for going out for a run because he was a black man in the wrong neighborhood. We watched George Floyd being killed with a knee on his neck. And it's the experience, as 
some of us were learning for the first time of being black in America. An experience I never had to pass on to my kids. Hey, be careful if the police pull you over. And we've begun to kind of see this long history of the devaluing of black bodies in our history. And so if you have a black body, you can say, why in this country is it like this? But it's not just our country, right? This whole world and all of history are filled with it. We have a world filled with prejudice and evil. Regardless of where you live, you could be the wrong color or have the wrong accent or be of the wrong ethnicity or class and grow up in a culture where you just think, why is this my body? Why is this my skin color? Why? And then on top of that, all of us deal with sickness. Our bodies are constantly breaking down. And that's even aside from being born with disability, a body that isn't working as as you feel like it should, or the dysphoria of not, not recognizing the body you're in or feeling like it's the wrong one. It's not uncommon that all of us at some point hate our bodies. But the resurrection declares that there is a new creation. And Jesus rose from the dead with an intention of restoring all of creation as it was intended to be. As New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay, who is African-American, wrote in a recent New York Times opinion piece, he wrote this hopeful narrative. We believe that one day the entire created world will be transformed to become what God always intended it to be, free of pain, death, and sorrow. It will be an earth that still contains some of the things of this life, food, art, mountains, lakes, beaches, and culture. There will be hip-hop, spirituals, soul music, and cheese grits and in the renewed creation. Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies will be transfigured or perfected, but they will still be our bodies. The resurrection declares that this world, this life matters and is good. And notice this, Jesus' body was raised physically, and it was not raised as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, perfect, angelic little Jesus. He was raised with the same Middle Eastern Jewish body he was born with, except now he also had scars, the holes in his hands and his feet from the lynching that had happened to him. Forever. The second person of the Trinity is forever with a Middle Eastern body with holes in his hands, the scars of the evil and suffering of this world. Esau Macaulay goes on to write about the hope that this gives somebody like him who's an African-American. Jesus' resurrection has implications not just for Jesus' body, but for all bodies. What is compelling to me is the clear teaching that our ethnicities are not wiped away at the resurrection. Jesus was raised with his brown, Middle Eastern Jewish body, When my body is raised, it will be a black body, one that is honored alongside bodies of every hue and color. The resurrection of black bodies will be the definitive rejection of all forms of racism. At the end of the Christian story, I am not saved from my blackness. It is rendered everlasting. Our bodies, liberated and transfigured but still black, will be the eternal testimony to our worth. Regardless, of the body in which you're in, the suffering you have endured, 
God's intention is not to cast it off, it's to redeem it. There is powerful hope in the face of the suffering we will face in this world in our bodies. And Jesus' scars that are forever there, right, the holes in his hands that are forever there, are an indication that, that our greatest sufferings will be redeemed and resurrected, not just done away with, that the sources of our deepest pain in this life will become the emblems of our greatest glory. As Pastor Tim Keller in a recent interview with Tish Harrison Warren in the New York Times talked about, and he's dealing with pancreatic cancer himself, he said, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering, evil, death, aging, pancreatic cancer are going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is powerful hope in the face of suffering. And because the resurrection is the declaration and that the demonstration of God's love and justice, it is also powerful hope for overcoming evil in this world. Again, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ it tells us that death has been defeated and so has evil, spiritual, personal, political. All evil has been defeated. And, you know, I mentioned earlier there's been a, a strong movement in our country towards justice, in our, and, and it's a good thing. But aside from a belief in God, in the existence of God, do you know that there's no objective grounds for validating our internal sense of justice, of right and wrong? If you don't believe that there's a God, then you can't actually call anything right or wrong. You can't say, oh, that's morally evil or that's unjust. It doesn't exist. So if you don't believe that there's a God, right, if there's no God, let's just start there for a moment. You can say that you don't like what Putin and his armies are doing in Mariupol, in the rest of Ukraine. You don't like it, but it's just your opinion. There's no such thing as objective immorality or wrong. What one army does to a bunch of citizens is no different than what a lion does to a gazelle. Do you think the lion chasing down and eating the gazelle is immoral? No. It's doing what it does instinctually. The strong eat the weak. And from a purely secular and atheistic point of view, that's actually the only conclusion you can come to on any evil in the world. Philosophers know this. Philosophers know this, that apart from a belief in something greater, in a, in a creator who designed things with intention, who will judge all things, then we're left to just kind of make judgments on our own, but it's really just opinion. And most people who kind of study these things, kind of biologists and such, would say, we have just evolved genetically to have the trait of empathy or calling things good and evil, and that makes it more likely that we'll survive. Those who have the empathy thing, those who, who, who point out good and evil, they're more likely to survive, and so it's kind of been a genetic coding over millions of years to have us think that things are good and evil, but really they're not. The mother pig pushes out the runt of the litter, and it's not evil, it's just doing what it does. One country conquers another, one person eats another, it's just strong eating the weak. But if there is a God, and he's not just the creator but also the judge, and he won't just 
bring judgment on justice and evil, but has also experienced it himself and overcome it? If the God of the universe has entered our fallen creation, confronted evil and injustice by enduring it himself and overcoming it, then we can call violence and injustice evil and wrong. We can actually do it. And we can confront evil and injustice or endure it without resorting to the same tactics and methods of the powerful and evil. Jesus did not use his power to incinerate his enemies. He overcame them through submitting himself to and obeying the Father. The Christian gospel is about the establishment of a kingdom that is an upside-down kingdom. It's not about being good, but about admitting your need. It is not the powerful who are in, but the poor and needy. And Jesus Christ reveals his greatest glory on a cross. His sacrificial death for us is not just an example for us to follow, but it is a display of God's greatest glory. When we realize the cross and the resurrection, what it's telling us, it's a tremendous resource for hope, for confronting and enduring evil in this world. And that's what Jesus does. He confronts all the powers of this world with God's justice and love. And that's actually the final thing is that the, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the declaration that he is actually Lord and God. And that's why Christianity was a threat. You know, the Romans let all sorts of religions exist. They would not have been upset about a bunch of people who said, oh, this guy named Jesus told us how to turn the other cheek. They wouldn't have cared about that. It was the claim that he rose from the dead that got all of them executed because it was the claim that there was another Lord. And it's a claim not just for Caesars to be afraid of, it's a claim for us to be afraid of. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then it's a threat to us. It's a threat to me being Lord of my own life. And that's why I think there's an invitation, even this morning, to not just settle for not being sure. Don't just settle in agnosticism. Don't just settle in, I'm not sure what happens. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. But ultimately, don't just sit there thinking about some abstract God. It's easy to not believe in an abstract God. It's much harder to say, what do I do with Jesus, the actual person? Is he who he claimed to be, Lord, God? Did he rise from the dead? And that's really the crux of it. As Tim Keller recently put out on the Twitter, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is plausible, it is powerful, and lastly, it's personal. In John chapter 20 that we just read, verses 6, 7, 8, we get this description of John entering the tomb, seeing the evidence, and believing. And what's deep being described here in seeing is that he does detective work. He's observing the linens and the way that they're folded. He's contemplating, he's theorizing, he's making a hypothesis. What do I see? What do I observe? How do I make sense of this? And he believes. Aha, Jesus has not been stolen his body has not been moved by the Roman authorities. He's alive. 
And what's amazing about all the New Testament accounts of the resurrection narratives, which we're going to look at the next few weeks, is that Jesus, the risen Jesus, meets each person personally where they are. With John, he lets John theorize and think it out. With Mary, which we're going to see next week, Jesus talks to her and calls her by name personally, gives her an identity. With Peter, he offers him forgiveness and restoration. With Thomas, he lets him touch him and have those doubts. And with Paul on the road to Damascus, he slams him to the ground. Sometimes he's harsh, sometimes he's gentle, sometimes he lets you think it through. But he deals with each person personally because he wants to have a relationship with you. The God of the universe wants you to know him, and he intends to meet you personally. So your experience with this risen Jesus is not going to be like other people's. Some people have emotional faith experiences you may never. Work it out rationally. Listen for God calling to you in other ways, speaking to you through people, through the Bible. You can ignore and pretend that there's, there's no meaning, no God. You can make up your own version of God, hope that there's some sort of afterlife and your life is being good enough. Or you can do what John did, enter, Take a couple steps further in, further than just showing up today. Look. Look with your heart, with your mind. Read something. And then you can find life through faith in the one who rose bodily from the dead. Let us pray. God, sometimes these things are too unbelievable for us. We live in a modern world where we see and touch and hold everything and think we can control it, and yet deep within us there's a longing for justice, for eternal life, for a hope beyond the things we can control. You change the world, the course of history, the lives of billions. Because of your death and resurrection, there is a hope more powerful than the evils and brokenness of this world. Make it real to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, who rose from the grave, we pray. Amen. To reveal your kingdom coming 